0: Revelation gives us a vision of Christ today, right now, enthroned on high, sovereign over everything. And that's what that first song was about. It was about, this is our God. Despite what the world may tell us, despite what myself may tell me, my feelings may tell me, my experiences may tell me, Revelation is picturing This is my God on his throne, the one who was and is and is to come. And everything that's happening around me in and through my life has a purpose and is part of a greater plan. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And the takeaway from Revelation, a couple of them is, do you know this one? Do you know this king? Do you know him in this way? Is he just some static figure from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And you can tell us everything about his life and ministry, but you have no idea who he is here. King over all. Do you love him because you recognize who he is? And do you trust him? Do you trust what Revelation is telling us? That in this time between his resurrection and until his return, This world is not spiraling chaotically out of control. Every breath, everything is happening perfectly in accordance with the eternal plans and purposes of our God as revealed in that scroll, which Christ himself was the only one worthy to take and to remove the seals and everything that's being executed as the sovereignty of our king. But do we trust him like that? You see, the songs we sang, in your mind, you may have thought, oh, good, I haven't sung this song in a long time. No, the question is, do we believe these songs? And there were some certain things in some of those lyrics I kind of cringe at. But do we trust him? Do we love him? Do we see him on his throne? Well, let's continue our journey together. Revelation chapter 9 this morning. Revelation chapter 9. We have made our way two weeks ago through chapter 8 and the blowing of the first four trumpet judgments. And this morning we come now to trumpets 5 and 6, Lord willing. Uh, We'll get through these together and see what the Lord has in store for us through this revelation. Revelation chapter 9, we'll actually begin reading in chapter 8, verse 13. Okay, verse 13 picks up with the final, the blowing of the final fourth trumpet, and now there's this interlude in verse 13, and then in chapter, chapter 9, there's going to be trumpets 5 and 6. Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a fallen star from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, The month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues... A third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Let's bow our heads and let's seek the help of our God. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning once again, and we pray, Father, uh, the presence of your spirit here with us this morning. This is your inspired word. You wrote it, not man, you have written it. And Father, you have preserved it for our good today. And Father, I pray that you would free us from... uh, or anything that we cling to that may take away from understanding the revelation of Christ in this passage. Uh, Father, as believers, we pray this morning you would help us to understand why this passage is here and, and how you intend this for our good today in our lives. And we pray that this would be a day where, where maybe if there's anyone here today whose heart is, is dull and dry and cold toward our King, that this would be a day of awakening, that we would hear the alarms going off all around us, and we would look to Jesus, look to our King, and cling to him as never before. We pray if there's anyone here today who, though they are religious, they're moral, they're good people, that's, that's who we are generally. But if they've never, ever turned away from every other idol in their life, And turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior, yes, their King, their treasure, their everything. Father, we pray if that has never taken place, this would be the day of salvation. For your glory and for the joy of that individual. in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're picking up now where we left off two weeks ago. The first four trumpets have sounded. We're going to move right into verse 13. There's an interlude before the fifth trumpet comes. That's one of the reasons we know that as with the first four seal judgments, the first four go together. Also, because whether we're looking at the seal judgments, whether we're looking at the trumpet judgments, or whether we're looking at the bowl judgments, they're looking at the same thing. They're looking at the same period of time from the resurrection of Jesus until his return, and each one of those Three judgments, seals, trumpets, bowls, it's looking at a different aspect of it. And and, and part of the reason we see that is the groupings. The first four seals go together, the first four trumpets go together, and we're going to see the same thing with the bowls. There's a repetition going on there. So we looked at that, and we come to verse 13 now. Before the opening of the fifth seal, we read these words. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, this is intended to be a terrifying picture. This is intended to grab our attention when we read about this eagle who's flying around and is uttering, woe. Just one woe is eye-catching. Two woes is take notice. Three there's only one other place in Scripture where we see a word repeated three times. And you know what it is Holy, holy, holy. Why? Why is God called the tri holy God? It is to uphold the superiority, to uphold the supremacy, the limitlessness of His holiness. There's only one reason these woes are repeated three times before seals 5, 6, and 7 are opened for the same purpose. Throughout scripture, the eagle, a bird of prey, is often used to describe judgment. The picture is God would bring judgment on a nation, leave a wake of dead bodies, and the eagle would come and feed on the dead carcasses. It was a picture of massive bloodshed, massive judgment. And so here we have this bird of prey who cries out so that all creation can hear him. And basically he's saying this. All right, the first four trumpets have sounded. If you think that was bad, you haven't seen anything yet. If you think the judgment of our King Jesus Christ on a world that lives in rebellion to him and refuses him, if you think what you've seen up to this point is bad, the judgment upon land, ocean, Fresh water and sky, right? That was the first four. If you think that all those things being turned against you is bad, that's nothing compared to what's coming next. There's three more trumpets to blast. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The first four affected creation. Again, oceans, land fresh water, sky. It's almost, a, if you, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the creation of all things, these trumpet judgments, the first four, are almost a decreation. God, in judgment, decreating the creation that he made for his glory. But these next three, whoa, 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 are on humanity themselves. They are on humans themselves. And they're a little bit more difficult to understand They're spiritual in nature. The first four are physical. They're affecting creation. The next three are spiritual. And and that's where we, in a lot of contemporary books, see some very outlandish understanding. Uh, I'm telling you, it's it's very challenging what we're about to see. Let's dig into them together. After the eagle cries, whoa, 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 warning us that this is massive, what's about to take place. These judgments of Christ. We read in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, about the fifth trumpet. And and as we look at this, it's important to keep this in mind. Think back to in in Revelation chapter 7. We had the, the, the sounding of the sixth seal, which was final judgment. And you remember chapter 6 closed with the question, who can stand when King Jesus comes in unrestrained wrath and judgment? So much so that human beings of every type are crying for the mountains to fall upon them because it would be better to be buried alive and dead with Mount Everest crushing you to death than for you to have to stand face to face with this king in unrestrained wrath. Who can stand in the presence of this king who we have sinned against? Chapter 7 goes on to answer that question. It's the church, but more specifically, it's those who've been sealed, in fact, we have the angel who comes in chapter 7 and says, before you destroy land and trees and all these things, wait until the people of God are sealed. They need to be sealed because there's a lot of bad things going on around them. These people must be sealed, must be kept secure. I think one of the most important takeaways as we're continuing through the book of Revelation and particularly from today's message is that if you and I are true believers in Jesus Christ as as not just Savior, but Lord, treasure, King, everything, to glory in Him, to glory in the greatness that is our King. Because as these woeful judgments are falling in the fifth and sixth trumpet, you and I have got to be aware, you and I, by the grace of God, Sheer grace of God, sheer mercy of God. We are secure because in spite of ourselves, God has chosen to secure us by grace and mercy with the sealing of the blood of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And what we see taking place in chapters, uh, in trumpets five and six are horrific. But they don't touch us. That's not to our glory. That's not to our wisdom. That's not to our strategy. That is not. That is solely to the sealing of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. But woe for the unsealed. Woe to those not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. If you're paying attention, you've got to ask, oh, how does a star even hold a key? <laughs> right? If, if you're paying attention to the imagery, you, you've got to at least pause there and say, a star fallen, he's given a key. What's going on there? Symbolism. It's revelation. We've seen it over and over again. The star is symbolic of an angelic being who in turns is being given the key to what we're going to learn is called the bottomless pit or the abyss. So the question is, who is this angel? Who is this one? Well, I think we could probably all guess and probably get it right. But Let's let's be biblical. Let's make sure that we've got chapter and verse to at least make sure we're going down the right path. I would commend to you that what we see here in in, in verse 1 is exactly what we see coming from Jesus' mouth in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Furthermore, the, the verb here for a star fallen, it's a perfect participle. You may not remember grammar, from, but it just simply means it happened once, and it's forever. He fell, and it's forever fallen, never to return to heaven. So this is not an angel who's being sent out for a purpose, and then will come back to the king. This is a tool, an instrument that the king is sending down in judgment upon the earth, and he's sending him forever. And then finally, I think the icing on the cake to help us identify this angel, this fallen star is in verse 11. If you skip down talking about the army of this angel who's a, a trumpet blast, who's a, a judgment upon the world, the angel. They, the, the, the army, have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And that king is referred to as in Hebrew, Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. So y- you connect all the dots. It's, it's unmistakable, clearly, what's being described here as Satan. This is Satan who is being cast down upon the earth with this blowing of the fifth trumpet onto a world that continues to rebel against Jesus Christ as king. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. Been rejecting him as king, Lord, Savior, treasure. He is worthy of glory He's casting down judgment, and with this fifth one, he sends down Satan upon the earth in judgment. And once cast down, we continue reading, Satan now inflicts a whole host of torments and tortures and uh, trials and afflictions and tribulations upon the earth by unlocking the shaft of the bottomless pit, which is a place of demonic presence. So look at verse 2. He we identify that now as Satan opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke of a great rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So Satan has given this key to the bottomless pit to the abyss which he opens and what happens? Out comes dense smoke. Again, let's be biblical. All throughout the Old Testament, dense smoke is a picture of what? Judgment. We see it all over the place. It's a picture of judgment. It rises and darkens the sky. Again, we're being, it's metaphorical. This is not literal. This is metaphorical. This smoke, symbolic of judgment, darkening the sky means on now, on this world which continues to live in rebellion of the King, Christ has now sent forth a woeful judgment with Satan. And the key to the, to the bottomless pit and the demonic activity that now takes place on the earth in this time between the resurrection and his return. Now, a couple of things need to be said here because we, our interest here is not in trying to be scholars in the book of Revelation. Our interest is as the church of Jesus Christ, understanding how God intends this to comfort us, to push us to Christ, to cling to him in all that we're going through today. So I think a couple of things need to be said at this point. Number one, this already demonstrates the sovereignty of God and how it extends over Satan himself. Again, I think that's probably something we know, but maybe this morning, maybe this morning you need to hear it again. The sovereignty of God extends over Satan and all of his realm. Notice it is the king who gives the keys to Satan. It's Jesus himself who holds the keys of death and Hades, not Satan. For a time, he's handed them over to Satan to do his bidding. It's crazy, isn't it? Satan, who hates Christ, is oblivious to the fact that he is a pawn and a tool in the king's hand. He thinks that he's going around on this earth. He is accumulating an army who's going to overthrow the king. Little does he know. He's a pawn in the king's hand. He is doing the king's bidding. Satan can't harm anyone or anything unless the king tells him to. Satan is powerless unless our king gives him the opportunity and gives him the permission to do it. This means the demonic wrath that in this fifth trumpet we see Satan usher in upon the world and unleash upon, again, unbelievers, those who are not sealed. This is a direct result of the fifth trumpet. And who's the one organizing the blowing of this trumpet? It's our king. It's just we need to keep in mind Satan is a defeated foe, and he's not going out without a fight. He's still fighting thinking he can overthrow but he cannot attack anyone who the king doesn't allow. And keep in mind the fullness of what we've seen. Our king has sealed those who belong to him. So in that sense, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to see language about Satan that he is bound. That's what this is talking We're not going to make that into some big picture. That's what this is talking about. He is bound. He he can, he's wreaking havoc here, but make no mistake about it, he is bound. He can only do what the king, sovereign on his throne, intends for him to do. He's a tool in the king's hand. A second thing I think we need to keep in mind here when we look at the unfolding of this trumpet and the sixth trumpet coming and the seventh in a couple weeks is that we need to understand that John is picturing for us here the pervasiveness of evil on the earth when God says, I no longer hold back. You continue to reject me, then I let you have what you deserve. You know, we live in a world today and we acknowledge that things in this world are bad. Sometimes we're prone to think that today in the 21st century, they're worse than they've ever been. It's really not the case. They've always been bad For the, since the time of the 1st century all the way to now. Uh, things have always been horrific, and I would content, commend to you a lot of that. It is the fifth trumpet that's been blown. All oh, things are bad, aren't they? But not as bad as they could be. I would commend not even as bad as they should be for a people who have rejected Jesus Christ as king. We live in a world where multitudes for 2,000 years have rejected Jesus Christ, they've rejected God, they've rejected his rule, his reign, they have given given themselves over to wickedness saying, Christ who? I'm not going to do, I don't love you, I don't want you. I'm going to, the most wicked thing they could do, I'm going to go my own way and do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it. Law? Yeah, there's a law. My own heart. And there are limits to what God, God is patient. Our king is merciful. But do not mistake that for he is letting, I'll just let it go. Because there does come a point, and with the fifth trumpet we see this, where the king removes the restraints. And those who have lived a life priding themselves in their independence, their self-sufficiency, I do things my way, my wants, I live by one rule, that's my own, they will cower in terror before this king. The restraints will come off. And so when this fifth trumpet is blown Satan is allowed to release the abyss, this bottomless pit, this demonic activity upon the earth. And beginning in verse 3, we get a description of this demonic army, if you will. And they're depicted in terms of locusts and scorpions. Uh, Both of which, we've got to keep in mind the context of the day, were dreaded, dreaded things in the ancient world. Look at verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Now, why locusts, right? Why locusts? This is a great opportunity for us to pause. It's been a couple of weeks since we went through the first four trumpets. This is a good opportunity for us to stop and remind ourselves of how these trumpet judgments fit into the larger biblical storyline, right? One of the things we saw two weeks ago is that these trumpet judgments, almost to a one, are patterned after the plagues in Egypt, right? Do you remember that we went through? Remember that first trumpet judgment and how it was fire and and uh, fire and 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 hail came together, and in the trumpet blood was mixed with it. Well, and that that's an allusion to what the 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 plague on Egypt with the hail and fire, and the addition of blood in here in the Revelation passage is simply saying that it's just a, a whole other level to what happened there. And then we saw in the second trumpet, the, the poisoning of the, of the oceans. And then in the third trumpet, the, the poisoning of the, uh, the, the fresh seas. Remember the wormwood? And again, an allusion to what? Going back to Egypt, the, the poisoning of the Nile River when it was turned to blood. you remember? And everything came up just dead. And then the fourth trumpet was darkness, an allusion to the plague in Egypt when the skies went dark and Oh, powerful Egypt, self-sufficient Egypt, man. My, look at the Sphinx, look at the pyramids, look at all the, their wealth. But when the skies went dark, they were totally helpless. Same thing going on here. Why locusts? Was there not a plague, the locusts over Egypt? Remember the locusts that ravaged Egypt in the seventh. And what did a locust do? Man, it devoured everything in its wake. I mean, there was nothing left. It comes in, it, 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 it consumes everything. It creates famine in the land, right? These locusts are particularly terrifying because we're told in verse 3, uh, they were given power of scorpions of the earth. So again, an allusion to what we see going on in the Exodus events and the, the plagues, but only infinitely more so, right? Right? And so these locusts who have the power, to, they, they sting in powerful ways. Keep in mind, we're not talking literal here. We're talking metaphor. John is taking what he sees, and he's using the imagery. He's, he's biblical. He's, I've seen this before. I've seen, he's helping us connect dots. So what took place in microcosm in Egypt now in Revelation 9 with the blowing of the, these trumpets is taking place over the ends of the earth. It's taking place everywhere in this time between the resurrection of Christ and his return. And these these plagues, if you will, these trumpets, they've been going on for 2,000 years, and they will continue until the Lord returns. But unlike the locusts who decimated the crops of Egypt, um, we're told here in verse 4, that these locusts were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these creatures are, are, are limited to what the damage they're able to do. Right? They're coming, this is a judgment of our king upon the world that's in rebellion to him. These unbelievers, they're unsealed, and say, he's released Satan to come in, and these locusts with stings of scorpions, they're going to do great damage, but they're limited in what they're able to do. Just like when the plagues were on Egypt, right? They, Israel wasn't affected by them. Right? They were limited in what they were able to do. According to verse 5, They, the locusts, were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. They're allowed to torment for five months, but not to... to Again, we can't get caught up in 150 days. No, it's, it's... Everything's symbolic here. The idea here is there's... It's limited in what it's able to do. And in these days, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. That's verses 5 and 6. And then verses 7 through 11, it's going to go into some imagery of these locusts. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I do think we need to pause at this point and at least acknowledge the fact, at least in our lifetime, there have been many peculiar ways of interpreting the book of Revelation, let alone chapter 9. So, let me be clear. My position and... I hope it's just something you'll consider. In order to keep us on the tracks of what it is John is intending for us to see and understand what Jesus is in, intended for us to see, I think it's important for us to understand these images are a vision. It's a vision of, uh, that's being given to him. It's, it's not a, a literal chronological series of events. And I don't think John is telling us when we read... Um, about the scorpion stings, but not those who have the the mark on their forehead. I don't think John is telling us to expect a day when Christians will have a literal seal on their forehead and all others who don't have that seal will be stung by a locust or something of the sort who has the the power of a, a scorpion. If we let our mind wander, These visions are already complex enough. If we let our minds wander away from just the biblical text of what's come before this, we get into some really, really uncomfortable and, I would say, unbiblical places. You've read the books. I've read enough of them. If we allow our mind to go off into how Lindsay's the great, great planet Earth or those types of books that take everything and try to identify the, the scorpion and the the locust with some modern-day contemporary thing, or if we allow our understanding of this to be cultivated by Hollywood's portrayal of this, man, we're going to completely miss what's going on here. I've read most of the same books you have. I, I, I was brought up in the same understanding of these things as you were. I hold the things that I hold, not because I'm ignorant of the. Other position, I, that was where I grew up. I get that. I know that. I don't find it compelling or biblical anymore. I don't think that what we see here, these locusts, was, I don't think these are nuclear warheads. I, John, John would have had no concept of that. I, I don't think what we have here, the, 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 the army, the, uh, Russia or China or this, that, or the other, that, that's not even on the radar. They didn't have nuclear warheads. They didn't have uh, uh, Apache helicopters. And sometimes the argument is made to to kind of strengthen the credibility of the Bible and to say, well, no, those things weren't there today, but look, this is the credibility of the Bible. God knew these things even beforehand, and, and though they didn't exist then, man, it speaks to the validity of the Bible. The Bible doesn't need validity like that. The Bible has internal, intrinsic validity. So... Maybe you, like I, have held to some of those views and held them dear in the past, but respectfully, I don't think it's helpful. So if that's the case, what is the point of these trumpets? What is going on here? What are we saying? Two things. First, for you and I as Christians, we see this. No matter how powerful evil may be in the world in which we live around us, no matter how powerful it is, Evil cannot ultimately destroy those who have the seal of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ in their lives. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, covered by the blood of Jesus. All that we see here, the massive, woeful, remember, woe, 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 in the blowing of the fifth trumpet. It is horrible things, and it's going to get worse in the sixth trumpet and then even worse in the seventh trumpet. With all of these things going on, we must understand you and I can't be touched by it. But the flip side of that, the second thing we need to understand about this is this. That same evil, which has no longer has any power over us, that same evil finds it so easy to destroy the unsealed. Think about that for just a minute. This evil that we see here has no power over us. But for the unsealed, it has such easy power to destroy and deceive. How? Keep in mind, this is where a lot, these are not literal things. These are spiritual realities. These are spiritual realities on a world that is in rebellion to their king. The locust with the scorpion sting is a picture. It's a metaphor of a spiritual reality. But not completely unlike the parables of Jesus. It's a picture. Go, let's look at some of the descriptions of the locusts. There's something about them in John's portrayal of them that's attractive. And that's not because locusts are pretty. It's because there's a spiritual reality that's being communicated here. For instance, look at what he says. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Stop there. Who wears a crown of gold? A king. A sovereign. Someone of dignity. Someone of of, of great uh, reputation. Someone with position. You see, this judgment of Christ on a world where he's pulled back the restraints and said, you know what? Woe to you. You continue to live in rejection to me. You continue in a life of evil and sin. I pull back the restraints that have kept you from being as bad as you could be, and I give Satan the key to open it, and now it comes upon the earth. Evil and sin, and we know this even as Christians, does not come up to you and say, hi, I'm evil, here's my business card. I want you to know ahead of time, I'm a bad dude. I'm going to destroy your life. I'm going to wreck your marriage. I'm going to make your children hate you. I'm going to make sure you end up miserable. Sin, evil doesn't do that. It comes up what? It looks dignified. It looks attractive. It looks like here I am walking this path, and here's the temptation. Maybe I'm missing out. It attracts us. It allures us. That's what's happening here. Notice what comes next. Then we're told their faces, talking about the locusts, right, We're like human faces. Sin gives the appearance of being human. Sin gives the idea of... Sin's not going to come up and say, listen, anyone who's ever done this, their life has been wrecked. Here, but, but let me tempt you to do it. Sin is going to say... Everyone's done it. And they've gotten away with it. And they're enjoying it. Their lives are better for it. It looks human. It looks just like us. It looks like the way of the Christian life, man, a fanatical way to live. It's a crazy way to live. This is the human way to live. This is how everybody lives. You go live like that, man, you're an oddball. You're crazy. You're fanatical. This is how, that's how sin operates. And then notice what comes next. Their hair was like women's hair. Again, he's talking about the locust. We, we, at this point, we've got to understand, this is not literal. <laughs> this is where it gets crazy if we, if we try to continue down that road. This is a, a picture of a spiritual reality. Now, I don't want to get myself in trouble here with my wife, but men... Does it take your wives an exorbitant amount of time to get ready? And it seems like it's nothing but the hair, right? It's just, how long does it take? Wash it, dry it, curl it, this, this, that, the other, right? Please tell me I'm not the only one. Why do women spend so much time on their hair? It's Probably an insensitive thing for me to ask, but having no hair, but, but why? For a woman, it is their glory, right? It is their beauty. And that's the idea here in this passage here. Why do women spend so much time on their hair? Because it's part of their glory. It's part of their beauty. And these creatures, these locusts who have been sent unlocked out of the abyss to come and to bring evil and wickedness unrestrained upon the earth, they come in with glory, with beauty, with majesty. That's how evil works. That's how sin operates. It portrays itself as singularly attractive, as singularly, I must have, I must have this thing. And then, it's got you in its clutches. Evil and sin, we know this gives the appearance of being dignified, of being human, right? How many times even as Christians do we say, well, nobody's perfect. Be that as it may, the point is that's human. Humans err to err as human. And sin would have us believe that Hey, if you're human, you're, you're going to do this. And it portrays itself as being attractive. But the sin that is sent upon the earth, the evil that is sent upon the earth, unrestrained, is not what it appears to be. And we know that from the very next description. And their teeth was like lion's teeth. Oh, up until this point, everything was... Beautiful, attractive, alluring, I might might contemplate this, but lion's teeth, those maim, those destroy. It's kind of like what the father in the book of Proverbs warned of his son. Madam Folly is tremendously beautiful, but look into her mouth. All right, we have read the Proverbs, what's he getting at there? On the outside it portrays itself as alluring and beautiful, but you've got to look inside. It's not what it appears. There's more going on. In a world where sin runs rampant, we as Christians must be discerning enough to look into the mouth of sin, because sin comes to us and it portrays itself as dignified, beautiful, glorious, human. Everybody does it. But if you look into the mouth, you realize it is covered in blood. It has devoured men and women for 2,000 years plus and will continue to do so. We must look into the teeth of sin and ask ourselves, is this the voice of God or is this the voice of the one who's been given the key and has unleashed all this on the earth? He goes on to more descriptions. Time is getting away from me. Let me me try to boil it. What are we looking at here in this fifth trumpet? I think what we're seeing is this. I do not want us to get lost in all the specifics of, of this. What we're getting at here, Jesus Christ in judgment on a world that continues to rebel against him, continues to reject him as king of kings and lord of lords. And that king has said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've held back up until now. But now I let go of my restraints. And I give Satan permission to incite men to wickedness. To incite men to evil in a way that their hearts already want to do. The only reason they're not as bad as they should be is because I have kept them from being as bad as they should be. And with these locusts, right, I'm creating not physical famine, spiritual famine. That's what the locust does. It comes, it devours everything in its path. That's the judgment of God upon this world. I'm creating a spiritual famine. This world continues to reject me in spite of who I am and all that I've done, my common grace. Okay. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you should get. Here comes. My judgment, things will be as bad, or moving towards as bad as they should be. And these locusts, these armies of Satan, these these spiritual realities will bring hardship, pain, and suffering. Again, keep it upon those who are unsealed. These two trumpets are upon those who are unsealed. They're going to destroy all hope. They're going to leave people empty and desolate, people who get their hands on family and, and, and sin and, and riches, not because any of those things are inherently bad except for sin, but they, and then they, they think it's all everything, and then they realize it's nothing. It's a judgment of the king. Now, let me be abundantly clear on this before we move on. It is not God here who is promoting sin. I want to preserve the holiness of God, the holiness of our king in this. This is not Jesus Christ on his throne promoting sin, inciting people to sin. God is holy. Our king is holy. He has warned us against uh, sin. He commands us against sin. And he has provided in Jesus everything we need that his people will not sin. Right? That's the blood of Jesus Christ. But humanity loves sin. Humanity hates Christ hates God, it loves sin, and those who are outside of Christ will continue to choose sin. And what God is doing now is just simply, I have restrained you from being as bad as you could be. But since this is what you are, this is what you want, then I will let you go. I will release Satan, and humanity will be as cruel and self-indulgent and as bad as it wants to be. It's very much like what we read in the Exodus account. And there's so many illusions here. Remember the story, God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Right? Now, is God inciting Pharaoh to sin? Can, can Pharaoh stand before God and say, no, 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 you can't hold me accountable for that. You harden my heart. No, absolutely Why? The idea there is Pharaoh was already in rebellion to God. And The, the only reason he wasn't as bad as he would have been Because God was restraining him, keeping his heart somewhat softened. But when Pharaoh reached that point of no return, God removed the restraints and allowed Pharaoh's heart to harden, to do what it naturally would have done. And that's exactly what's happening here. Keep that illusion in mind. We're coming back to that in just a minute. This is what we see every day of our lives with this fifth trumpet. When we turn on the news, when we pick up the telephone and that people give us the bad news, our family, our friends. The atrocities of sin we see not only around the world, but down our own streets. When we see people who will not follow Christ, they start to lose everything. They start to, they start to dwindle down into uh, just nothingness. They lose everything. Their lives are just overcome. It is the fifth trumpet. Sin. This army of locusts is creating spiritual famine to a world that will not take Jesus Christ as king. They're not allowed to kill them, but to torment them. These frightening trumpet judgments, they're not even over yet. In verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And that issues in the sixth trumpet with verse 13. Verse 13, 13. then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, do you hear the sovereignty of your king there? (laughs) The, the, The four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, fall on your knees before this king, who in this judgment, everything is perfectly on time. We're released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. How did he know? I heard the number. So keep in mind where we just came from, that Fifth trumpet, that demonic horde that came up out of the bottomless pit. Again, we're spiritual realities. It's a spiritual picture of the presence of sin and evil on this world. It was allowed to torment, but not to kill, right? Now, with the sixth trumpet, whoa. With this blast, it leads to the death of one third of the world's inhabitants. So, the picture here is a progression, right? These trumpets have moved from the first four, God's judgment upon creation. There's a decreation, everything that man may find their hope, their joy, their satisfaction in. It turns against them, right? And then in the fifth trumpet now, it's it's Christ's judgment upon the world, uh, torment, evil, sin, doing its worst, unrestrained. And now with the sixth trumpet, now it brings. There's a picture here of this demonic empowerment, this demonic army. And again, I, again, not to belabor it, I think that if you spend your time trying to hold this in the newspaper in the other hand and you're trying to identify who is this, is this China, is it Russia coming up against Israel, we got the river Euphrates, if you're trying to connect dots and draw arrows and this, that, and the other, you're going to miss the point. These are spiritual realities. John mentions the Euphrates River which, and then the 200 million, which is the, the number there, the 200 million. And some have taken that literally. Some 200 million man army invading across the Euphrates, setting the stage for some big battle called Armageddon. We'll, we'll get to all of that. And then they assign who that is, Russia, China, whoever. That's what happens when you don't hold Revelation in one hand and Genesis through Jude in the other hand. Because all throughout the Old Testament and throughout historical context, the Euphrates River has been a symbolic line of demarcation, if you will. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Jeremiah. Was it a real geographic point? Yes, absolutely. But you can't also miss that all throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, I think, that it is used as a spiritual boundary that the enemies of the people of God, Assyria and Nineveh, they lived on the other side of the Euphrates, right? Outside of the, the promise, Outside. And, and, and beyond the Euphrates, that was where Israel had been carried off into bondage. It was, it was beyond the Euphrates. And in those passages, it talks about the land of the north of the Euphrates, to the south of the Euphrates, to the west of the Euphrates, to the east of the Euphrates. Not because it's it's pointing out some very specific gear. It's just simply saying, using Eu- Euphrates is a line of demarcation across is bad stuff. Enemies. Armies invading. And so the Euphrates River is a symbolic boundary between Peace and safety and war and uncertainty. One commentator writes it this way. The name Euphrates marks the boundary between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and that of Satan, in John's language. And so he creates this symbolic imagery of an army, a foreign group, enemy, spiritual who's invading and then he he describes this massive army and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them they wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths and again I think a lot of time gets wasted trying to identify this is he talking about soldiers there yeah but not modern day human soldiers not those of a modern nation. He's using this imagery of soldiers coming from this place outside of Euphrates, a place of war, a place of aggression, a place of where your enemies are, to picture something horrific and terrifying, something destructive. And keep in mind the symbolism of, we've got the four angels, and we've seen this in every one of them. Four angels, four is a picture of a uh, symbol of universality. The four angels ushering this in. It's a, it's a worldwide thing. It's not just assigned to some geographic area. And this massive army, these large-scale deaths, imply this world that's in rebellion to the king is engulfed in divine judgment. It's going on around us everywhere. And while all this is divine judgment is going on it's being experienced upon the earth day in and day out, because they will not bend the knee to King Jesus. You would think that with this one comes death. You would think that at some point the objects of Christ's judgment would throw themselves down at his feet. They would come to their senses and cry out to him, "O oh, King, forgive me. O oh, King, I feel the gravity and the weight of your judgment upon us, upon me. O king, I repent. But what actually happens? What happens every single day? It has happened happened since the resurrection. It will happen until the return, is verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, again, there's still restraint there. Only one-third are killed. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. One third, not a real number, not one, two, three, you're dead. One, two, three, you're dead. One, two, three, dead. One, two not that. Is simply saying this judgment of the king, which will result in death, it doesn't kill everybody, all the unsealed, yet. So you have a third symbolic number who are killed. And the other two-thirds that won't repent, they are spiritually deceived. Completely spiritually deceived. They have sat through five trumpets. They have lived their lives from the day of their birth until the day of their death with the king sounding an alarm, sending trumpet after trumpet after trumpet. And most still will not repent of their failure to acknowledge Jesus Christ as king. And where have we seen that before? That was the whole story of the Exodus. You had Pharaoh, who himself was one who would not bend the knee to God. He had these other false gods that he turned to. And God sent these plagues. One of the purposes of the plagues was to convince Egypt and Pharaoh that their God over all these worldly things, God was superior. The God of the Bible was superior. He was more powerful. He was greater. Yet with every one of the plagues, what was happening with Pharaoh's heart? It was hardening. It was hardening. Is that not what we see here? Is that not? We're at the sixth trumpet now. People are dying because of their failure in judgment. There are people who get a phone call. Their loved one, an unsealed loved one, died, is in a grave. That is a trumpet call of the king saying, your trumpet is coming. But in grace, you've got a chance to repent. And yet they refuse. Their hearts continue to harden. That's what's happening here. I'm fully convinced that all of what was happening with Israel and Egypt and the Exodus and the plagues is just simply setting the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ in the time between his resurrection and his return. You see, the real judgment of the sixth seal here not death. The real judgment here is the hardening of the heart. The real judgment here is that a person can sit through trumpet after trumpet after trumpet after trumpet after trumpet day after day after day after day, after day. and not here. I would imagine if this were written in today's day, it wouldn't be a trumpet. It would be a, a fire alarm or a uh, police siren, or something of that sort. And I was thinking about that this week. Unless the police car is directly on my bumper and has got his police siren pulling me over, I can hear a siren and almost not even realize it's there. And that's what John is talking about here. The awfulness of the heart, of the hardness of the heart, results in a rejection of Jesus Christ as king, will lead to final judgment. I've kind of consolidated this sixth seal just for the sake of time. Let me try to put a cap on this this morning. What's the takeaway? Why is this here? I don't think God has any interest in us being scholars of the book of Revelation. So why? What's it here for? I think at this point, we can really begin to put the storyline of the Bible together And as we see these trumpets unfolding, you have to connect the dots. John is guiding us to connect the dots in Egypt. That was a foreshadowing in Egypt of God's judgment against unbelievers who reject him. That's what the plagues were about. Egypt would not let God's people go. They would not bend the knee to his sovereignty, to his authority. And the plagues were all about God's judgment on them for their lack of belief in him. Furthermore, and don't miss this, this is the real connection. Just as it was the plagues that initiated the final exodus out of bondage that ultimately led the people to the promised land, right? You got the imagery? They're in bondage for 400 years. It's the plagues that initiated it that ultimately led them out of their slavery, out of their bondage, ultimately into the promised land. Christ gives you and I who live in the time between his resurrection and his return, and we live in a world where there are great tribulations, great trials, great afflictions going on all around us because the judgment of our king upon a world that lives in rebellion to him, we are sealed. We can't be affected by these things, but my goodness, they're going on all around us. And as humans, it feels like, man, they could overtake me at any moment, go back to the seven churches. Isn't that what was happening there? just as the plagues in Egypt were what initiated their release, so too I commend to you and I, seven churches of Asia Minor and Covenant Life Church here in the 21st century, that these trumpet blasts are our present-day plagues which are initiating God's eternal plans and purposes to ultimately bring us out of our slavery to this world. We're here, and it's a miserable existence. We have our king but to bring us to where he is forever. And to those seven churches who are struggling with the Roman Empire and 21st century Covenant Life Church who's struggling in a world that lives in rebellion to Jesus Christ, the message is, hear the trumpets. Your king is at work. Your king is accomplishing all that he intended to do. Your king has sealed you. Covenant Life Church, in just a moment we're going to sing a song, Amazing Grace. Can anyone possibly give explanation for why you've been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? Was there something good in you, righteous in you, moral in you? According to Romans chapter 3, we were all dead in our sins and trespasses, and that's even Ephesians 2. So what is it? It's the mercy of God. He's marked us, not with a literal mark. Let's get that imagery out of our head, throw your books away. Not a literal mark, he's marked us, he's placed us, he's put his gracious favor upon us by electing us before the foundation of the world by mercy and grace, by calling us with a voice that says, come, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he gave us a heart to respond to Christ, to go to him forever. He's called us to the cross of Jesus Christ where God put upon his son the final judgment we deserve that the unsealed will get. He put upon Christ the final judgment so that our sins can be forgiven. He's given us the grace to repent of our sins. And the sealing is just simply the promise that says, I know you're hurting. I know there's a lot of things, but I've given you everything in Christ to protect you forever. Cling to Christ. Look to Him. First thing in the morning, hold on to Him. And I think the final thing I think this instructs us to do, and I can't help but think about most of the messages to the churches of of, of Asia Minor. There was sin in those churches. They were sealed, the true believers. But there was sin that needed to be dealt with, and there was a call to repentance. I think that the fact that God would give his church, Revelation chapter 9. Remember, Revelation is not written for unbelievers. It's written for believers. It's written for the church. Unbelievers need to look over our shoulders. We need to warn of this thing. But, but ultimately, it's written for Christians. And he's cluing us in on the process of divine judgment because the Christian life is one of repentance, not one time, not just a few times. But as Luther said in thesis number one of his 95 thesis, when Christ calls us to repentance, he calls the whole of life to repentance. It's an ongoing day in, day out called to repentance. And oh, how merciful our, our king is. I think it's, as we close this morning, it's worth our appreciation. These are trumpets and not yet bowls. All right, we've got seals, trumpets, bowls. And if I've understood the correction, the connection, seals prepare us for the trumpets, trumpets prepare us for the bowls. The seals give us a picture of, yeah, divine judgment, but it's Christ on his throne. So as you experience and see all these things going on around you, do not interpret it as though it's just the world going it's your king who's doing it. So the seals prepare us for the trumpets. When we see the trumpets, it's your king who's doing this. And the trumpets prepare us for the bowls. Why? What's the difference between a trumpet and a bowl? A trumpet is blown. A bowl is poured out. A trumpet warns the bowl is coming. But once the bowl pours, there is no last second to get it right. Once the bowl pours, The judgment of Christ is upon you. The trumpets are a mercy. They're a mercy to us. We're sealed if you're a true believer. These things can't affect you. And in the providence of God, God is using the trumpets as a tool to harden the hearts of those who are resistant to him. But for you and I, I would give to you the trumpets are a warning to wake us up. The Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of constantly sin, even as Christians, and we're sealed by God's grace. Sin continually, day in and day out, is coming up, not giving you a business card saying, here, I'm going to wreck your life today. It's coming and portraying itself as something attractive, something dignified, something beautiful, something glorious, something you have to have. And if you're like me, sometimes we take it. Every day we take it. And the Christian life is one of repentance. God has made provision for every one of our sins in Jesus Christ by grace. But these trumpets remind us. Cling to Jesus. Hold to him. And if you have stepped away from him, run back to him today. The trumpets call us.